Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, as always, your host, Don, and I am joined once again by my co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Hi, diddly ho. What's happening? Neighborino. Well, as we drift closer and closer to what we feel is going to be the end of season two of our podcast, Can You Believe It? We are going to take today's episode to talk about an interesting genre that I think will have a lot of really fun things to talk about, and that's going to be animals. We're going to take a look at animal-centric movies or TV shows, whether that is animals in speaking roles, animals in subject matter, animals just relevant to the plot. We are going to go deep into our love of animals and our love of animal media of course before we get into that we are going to go through our usual segment what you're listening to and i'm going to open it up to the floor who wants to go first i can jump in with this one is it in canto oh god you already got me (laughs) (laughs) i'm so sorry but i watched the movie again yesterday i cried I was able to get through the emotional climax without Salem releasing his bodily gases. Okay, that's okay. Bonus. Wow, that's <laughs> really personal. <laughs> so graphic. We'll have to put a warning on this episode. It's, it's got the explicit tag written all over. Right, NC seventeen written all over it. Move, move over, showgirls. But yes, you are correct, Don. I have been one hundred percent still going with the Encanto soundtrack again and watch the movie. But I do have something else to talk about because i was like i actually pushed myself like i don't normally get obsessed like this with stuff and the last time it happened was with frozen so encanto has definitely entered my lexicon but i do have to like push myself out of my comfort zone sometimes and luckily one of my favorite pop artists kim petrus uh released an album last friday or on friday i should say and i love a good sex positive album and i think wap was the last real sex positive song i've been able to jam to (laughs) it was something (laughs) oh that was the pandemic theme for me honestly i just it was beautiful again i just love sex positive music and especially when it gets raunchy i really enjoy that i think it's uh, an important conversation to have and it just doesn't have to always be sanitized it doesn't always have to be vulgar but i like to be in the middle i like being able to have both my like cute fun happy encanto songs with some slut pop <laughs> and that's the name of the album kim petrus has released an ep uh it's called slut pop oh that's um, awesome it's there was one of the songs is called throat goat <laughs> Awesome. I, I, you know what? I, that's what I'm saying. Is like I really love, uh, like a good dirty anthem, and I think uh, Kim Petras has knocked it out of the park. I think she's created a really fun album that's full of uh, summer jams. So one of the things I'm really happy with right now is it's really giving me energy, and like it's making me think. I'm like, oh, I want to listen to this album in the sun by the beach when I'm being a throat goat. <laughs> Anyway, so yes to Encanto, but more yes to Slut Pop. 
amazing. <laughs> and oh. that's what I've been listening to this week. That's that's fantastic. Because you were, I remember when we were recording uh, around Halloween, there was a big discussion about is she going to release another Halloween themed episode? And I think she was even pushing back against it, according yes. to you. She was like getting frustrated with no, it's not coming out. Leave yeah, me alone. and I think she, and it's not that she doesn't want to do the horror stuff. I think it's also that she just wants to do some more stuff as an artist. And so for her to take on this and do a little EP, that's my only complaint. It's, uh, it's 16 minutes long. Ooh. The songs are like really short and snappy and really good and really tight. But the album, the EP is only 16 minutes long. So like I have to listen to it twice. What else am I supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, what have you guys been listening to? I'll jump in here. My wife and I have been doing a uh, Gilmore Girls rewatch for some odd reason. We just randomly jumped in and said, hey, uh, why don't we go through the season again? I think it's the doldrums of it being late February and pandemic, of course, also related. And we just thought we needed some comfort food. And that was going to be in the form of watching Lorelai and Rory dance around Stars Hollow. And the music of that show has really been Mm. quite enjoyable to get back into. And we've been kind of taking a look at who was responsible for it, because I know the theme song is Carol King. And her daughter. Exactly. So it's nice to kind of get there. But then there's kind of that interstitial la-la music mm. is basically as it's talked about on kind of subreddits and online. And I wanted to learn just a little bit more about that. So we've just been kind of listening to that. And it's been stuck in my head for weeks now. And then the other thing that we've really been listening to is since our last record, I have been deep into heavy rotation of our cult classic soundtracks, which has been unbelievable. And I know (laughs) that the one big focus for me has been listening to Jamiroquai on repeat. So, of course, Canned Heat, huge in Napoleon Dynamite when we talked about that. But I've just been getting into their albums as well and just kind of capturing that sort of late 90s, early 2000s feeling again. That's basically what I've been listening to since our last record. Can I say I'm a huge Gilmore Girls fan? Ooh, like, excellent. I am a massive fan. I love all of that show, even though the last two seasons were super shaky. Yep. And Rory really deviates from her core characteristics, which I don't understand. But one of the things I really liked about Gilmore Girls is they actually had the musicians come on set. And so they would be, yeah, they would do their la-la-las or their singing on set and live. Mm-hmm. And I think they incorporated music really wonderfully. So, oh, I'm super jealous. And also, where are you watching it? How do I get it? I want to I want to do with this. I want it. Netflix. It's no. been there forever. Well, did you watch, uh, have you guys watched the three post movies yet? Like The, the A Year movies? in the Life? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hot Garbage. But Oh, stop. I actually really liked them. Oh, Anthony. What, who, I know. Who hurt I know. you? Ah, stop. <laughs> I thought it was a really cool wrap-up. Anyway, it's, I don't want to It's take... a fun look. No, no, no. It's a fun look back at the show and kind of re-emerging or like reintroducing ourselves back to characters who had been around for such a long period of time. It just wasn't great. I was just going to say, I'm also watching Game of Thrones right now, and I'm looking forward to season eight. So I like hot garbage. I love hot garbage. What can eight. I say? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm staying quiet on this one for a reason, because, you know, I mean, there is a whole period of TV between, I guess, late UPN and I guess the CW, of which I believe the Gilmore Girls came on, that I avoided like the 
fucking plague, man. Like I just, I was like, you know that that little that little baby in the memes that like you know turns into yes. the room and then spins back. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. So uh-uh. the one thing like, I love more than Gilmore Girls is people who hate Gilmore Girls. <laughs> it's because- not even that I hate it. I was just like, nope. I'm not devoting any brain space to this. I'm just, I can't. It's like that whole era of like between that and the film with like uh the Pattinson dude the Twilight Twilight that whole era of like pop culture is just like a a big blank slate to you you're like no e- I choose exactly. not to engage <laughs> no it's like it's like me and the Kardashians it's just I look I try to think about the Kardashians and it's just like static I can I am like a VCR it. where somebody <laughs> held a magnet a little too close for like a long period of time that's ex- I mean that's I want to give you props for uh, remembering the transition from UPN mm-hmm. to the CW because that was a major like early two thousands movement. Oh mm-hmm. my goodness! Yep. So yeah, that's a no for me, dog. But um, <laughs> so I guess I'll just chime in. I've been kind of boring musically lately. Uh, I my wife did get me a uh, Thelonious Monk uh, album for Valentine's Day, and I, I listened to that a bit. Um. I don't know if it was our conversation about Jay Dilla or just some random thought about like how I actually it may have stemmed from Get This Money, but like I pulled out like I had a bunch of records that I had in rotation, went back to where all my records are, grabbed some of a uh, Herbie Hancock and just went to town. But I will say that actually as late as last night, my wife introduced me to this series that she had been wanting to watch and it kind of took it got me in my west coast u.s early 80s late 70s feels snowfall you got three things in life when you're born what your mama tells you what the streets teach you and what the future holds which no one knows that's the one you got control over frankie I don't know if you guys have seen that. You know, I'm just getting into it. So, you know, apologize to anybody who's like, oh, you're so late to the game. But, like, it's actually pretty interesting. And there, it's peppered with tons of, like I said, late 70s, early 80s, West Coast sort of funk, R&B or whatever. And it, or even just, like, depending on the scene, lots of 80s music peppered in there, too. Like, yeah, not exactly the sort of Yacht Rock stuff, but, like, <laughs> you know, like, true 80s stuff. Like, you know, uh, lots of Hall and Oats and stuff in, like, the mm-hmm. first few episodes. Uh, other random things. And it's it's that's had me in my feels. So it's not necessarily some album or CD that I picked up recently that I've been listening to. But, like, just thinking about that and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember those songs. Those songs are, they rock. Hit me! But that's that's pretty much it for me with uh, listening to stuff lately. How is the show, Jason? I mean, only three episodes in. It's actually pretty interesting. Apparently, this is like uh, John Singleton's baby before he passed away. And, you know, it's interesting to see the sort of plot line develop. It's got sort of like a... Uh, lots of movies do this, but it sort of has like a Crash-esque feel oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah. it. Because it's like you've got all these sort of like disparate sort of plot lines that are like... You could tell they're going to meet up in some sort of weird way. But they, you know, so far it's like three or four different stories that are like uh, happening in the the outset, and it's it's pretty cool. That feels like a very mid '90s sort of plot driver. That it's all these separate stories, very sort of Paul Thomas Anderson with like Magnolia as well. So maybe, hopefully, there's no raining frogs or anything like that in that show <laughs> coming up anytime soon. I don't think 
frogs will feature large in this series but it's it's been good so far so yeah the the music's been a real trip because it's like i i've yet to hear anything that they've played that it's been like oh that's awful it's like oh yeah no that 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 song rocks good choice you know and then also it's so far it's been pretty clever usage of the music that they weave in like some of it's been ironic because they play it uh ones that stood out in particular is like bill withers uh lovely day oh oh yeah yeah, yeah. and let me tell you it was not a lovely day (laughs) but you know it was irony Um. it's good tv (laughs) indeed so that's that's it though and i know it's gonna be a lovely day one thing that i want to be listening to that i'm not quite yet because i haven't gotten around to picking up is speaking of releases that just happened moonchild had a, a album that just came out I want to say two Fridays ago. And that has definitely been on my radar at the, the album Starfruit. And I think it's it's one of those sort of uh, bands that it's like, if you know, you know, type things. But you could say that about a lot of stuff. And I'm looking forward to getting that. That seems like it's going to be pretty solid from some of the songs I've heard so far. So. so Jason, what's your process when it comes to new releases? Is it you go out and you get it on vinyl? Do you consume it in any other way? And Anthony, I'll probably ask the same of you because you guys are our vinyl experts here. Like, what is that sort of process? Do you try and give it a listen on streaming just to kind of get a feel for it? Or do you just go straight for the physical media? It depends, to be quite honest. I don't necessarily try to acquire every new album I get on vinyl. But if it's an artist I really like, I'm probably going to get it on vinyl as soon as it's available. Some of the challenge with that nowadays is that a lot of folks are going straight to digital. You don't have that option of buying a CD or a vinyl at launch. You know, you might have to wait weeks, if not a couple months, for some of those things to actually be physically (laughs) manufactured, which is irritating to say the very least. Um, And in some cases, it could be artists I really like. It could be an album that I really want. A perfect example of that would be like uh, Nas's uh, second album. I wanted it. I definitely planned to get it. But like it came to physical like months after the digital was out. And I was like, I'm not listening to this until I can have it in person. And eventually Amazon sent me like a digital copy. I did listen to that once they gave it to me. But like I was like, I don't want to hear this any other way except more or less at lossless so it it just depends on the artist and the album i think i would agree and i think like my true and tried tested artists are very few and far between like the last album that i bought outright that was a new album and that i was like oh i don't care i love this artist is casey musgraves and that was her new album, Starcrossed. And I'm actually going to see her next Tuesday. Ooh. Sorry, just a bit of a side jump, but apparently concerts are opening back up again in Ontario. So I'm going to go to a big concert next Friday. <laughs> I'm excited and terrified. Well, anyway, I hope nothing but the safest of experiences mm, for you. Same. Thank you. Thank you. It's Revel much... in your terracitement. Ooh, yeah. Anyway, um, terracitement. I like that. That's really good. I think you. Give... Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I like, I find I have artists and I'm like, okay, no matter what they produce, like I'm probably going to buy their album. But again, I would say it's like Madonna, Casey Musgraves, Carly Rae Jepsen. Those are my like top three that I'm like, they have status that I've invested in enough in their career that I'm like, yes, I'm going to buy your album. But for the most part, I really do a lot of streaming to test things out. Like Encanto is a, I'm sorry, I'm really, really sorry, but it's a good example of like, I've really become attached to that and I've listened so much 
watch on streaming that it will transfer over to vinyl. I'm like, oh yes, I'm definitely going to get that. But my vinyl tastes also are very specific to soundtracks. So like I tend to look out at releases that are very focused on vinyl only or vinyl and CD releases because the, the streaming will actually pick those up and release them at the same time now. That's becoming more common, but that wasn't the same. So streaming uh, for soundtracks for me was very difficult. It, soundtracks are really interesting in that regard where now catching or the streaming is now catching up to the vinyl in a way. So Interesting. No, yeah. thanks for that, guys. I just wanted to kind of get your sense of it. Sure. And it's a little bit of a preview for our upcoming vinyl focus episode. Very I true. Know, right? Look at you dropping the little hints there. Getting people foreshadowing for it. <laughs> smells like someone's being a good producer. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and uh, take a break. There, we will uh, come back with our main topic, looking at our one of our final genre topics: uh, animals and animal movies. So we'll be right back. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are back from break, and it is time to get into our conversation, uh, our main topic here uh, in our genre study season, looking at animals and animal movies. So we decided to kind of really broaden the topic here and go all out when it comes to uh, our selections for animal-based movies. So we're going to talk kind of all over the place about both movies and TV shows that are focus like the main plot points are animal based the characters like the speaking roles are animals in certain cases some are live action some are animated we are kind of going all out here just to try and capture all of our interests in animal based pop culture movies and tv shows and i think we've got an interesting selection that we're going to be able to speak to and it does cover a, a pretty significant gambit of different areas and different sort of genre studies which is going to be really fun so i think what i'll do is again i will open the floor to see who wants to kick us off with their first selection i can step into the limelight the spotlight is on you yes so uh i think i had a lot of fun kind of going through my options for this episode you know kind of going through what are the different animal and i even asked a couple friends and i was like you know what animal movies do you think of or what and the most common one that came out of every single person that said it, and I would say that people are aged probably about between 30 and 50, is Homeward Bound. In the classic tradition of Walt Disney Entertainment comes Homeward Bound, the incredible journey. Every single person said Homeward Bound, and I was like, that is so funny. It is such like a, I guess, 90s moment but yeah i definitely thought of that one i was like i really enjoyed that movie and milo and otis i i said to the last episode that that was like one of the first movies i remember seeing in theaters really really interesting but when i was going through i was like what are the animal movies that really impacted me like stayed with me and there was two that kind of jumped out and thinking about them i i kind of noticed that there's a lot of similarities between the two of them and you wouldn't think so but i chose to look at babe which was released in 1995 about a talking pig, and Jaws, which was released in 1975. <laughs> Those are basically the same movie. I don't like, know yeah, why. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I, as I was going through, listen to my, my train of thought here. So number one, they both are about everyman characters dealing with interactions with an animal. 
So you got Chief Brody as the police, and you got Farmer Hoggett. They're both revolving around animals that impact their community. So Jaws is a very negative impact. Babe is a very negative impact, but turns into a very positive impact. They both have four letters in their name of the movie. And they're both Sagittarius. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly see jason do you understand where i'm going with this good old random ass signs i'm sorry i just i had you for the first two though didn't i and you're like wow oh interesting no <laughs> the, the four letter thing which just felt like the world's biggest stretch i'm like okay yeah i suppose <laughs> but no i think the main common thing is the, the two animal movies that I think I really think of are Jaws and Babe. And I think one of the reasons I think of Jaws is because it taught me to be afraid of the water. <laughs> and I know that Peter Benchley, you know, has spoken about his impact of writing this novel and the novel being transitioned because he did write the movie. And so he's actually talked about the negative impact that his movie has had on the shark community. And I would definitely say it was a movie that caused me fear for not being able to see underwater. Because I remember watching it as a kid, and we had a pool. We were putting in a pool in our backyard. So I even remember when I was a kid being in the pool, and if I couldn't see, like, more than a little bit underneath me, I was terrified that there was a shark in my pool. And that is squarely on Stephen, Peter Benchley, and John Williams. The three of them, they got together and they're like, you know what? Let's fuck up some people. (laughs) So, uh, you know, the stories about Jaws and its production troubles and, you know, its success and its, like, template as the, you know, the first summer blockbuster has all been talked to death. What I really want to talk about was John Williams' score as a replacement for the shark. One of the things I love about the Jaws soundtrack is it's a perfect example of function over form. So form, when I think of the concept of form over function or function over form, I think of a sidewalk, that visual of a sidewalk, where people have decided that this is the path they're going to use, but then you have a path of walking grass that people use instead to get between the two spaces. So the people were like, the form should be this. (laughs) The people who designed it were like, this is how it should look. The people who actually needed to use it were like, no, we're going to use it like this. So John Williams had to do that in the score because they couldn't afford to make a lot of the scenes with the shark happen in the movie. So they actually replaced many of the scenes in the book with just underwater shots with his music. And that, to me, is a perfect example of form over function. You have a form of soundtracks that you need to, like, use on your... But the function of it is actually as a character in the movie. You're replacing the visual of the shark with a auditory sense. And he actually creates one of the most unnerving sounds just with those those few piano keys. That's what I loved about Jaws is that it was just like, you didn't see the shark for most of it. Was it... Were they piano keys? Oh, sorry, not piano keys, but... Strings, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, strings. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. I, no, no, no. I was I, like, wait a minute. Good correction. But yeah, so when those strings are like playing, it's very simple, but it's also very simple visually because it's just an underwater shot. And you're like, 
well, that's impressive because now the scariest thing about this movie is in my mind, which to mm-hmm. me is always the most effective form of horror. I would say the scariest things are always what my mind creates, not what is on screen. So that impacted me a lot as a kid. Like, holy crap, do I still even, even now when I go in a lake, because I can't see the bottom of it, I'm just like, there's Jaws is down there. Jaws, there's a big <laughs> shark. There's a huge mother flipping shark underneath me, and I know he's going to eat me. Good um, freshwater sharks. I know, right? Like, even rationally, <laughs> it's a phobia that I, I mean, I didn't even talk about arachnophobia, because that's a whole other issue that I'd like to devote almost an entire episode to. But Jaws definitely impacted me. But then fast forward to 1995, and little 14-year-old Anthony is discovering movies, and I remember renting Babe. This is the story of a brave soul. Who was trying to find his destiny. And it had not hit the big hype that it got. Like, it really started as a little bit of a small independent movie. And I remember renting it just off on a whim. And I had so much fun with it. (laughs) And I was like, I became obsessed with that movie. And I remember awkwardly getting a Christmas gift. So I I must have watched it and rented it a lot. And Christmas comes around. And my mom is notorious. Bless her heart. She's the sweetest person ever. But she doesn't always align her gifts with her logic. And so sometimes she'll get a generic gift that is applied to something. So I remember I opened up a VHS and it was a movie called Gordy. Oh, yes, Gordy. (laughs) And my mom was like, yeah, it's the talking pig movie you wanted, right? (laughs) And I was like, bless her heart. I love her so much. But I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a product of Hollywood, right? Babe had already hit and it was such a big movie. So they churned out any talking animal movies. And I got Gordy, I remember. I mean, I I don't think I ever watched it. I think we actually made fun of it a lot because I it wasn't owned, good. It yeah, wasn't no. Good. And I have my original copy, VHS copy of Babe. So that's how much I cherish this movie. I think it's also funny that George Miller of Mad Max fame wrote this movie and directed the sequel. It has such an odd history which is always really intriguing to me but yeah the whole concept of babe is i think again as i made my first point an animal impacting a community and it does and i think what i resonated with babe was babe was a pig that didn't fit in and you know it was always told you're a pig you're a pig you're a pig and it's like the underlying queer tones in that movie for me i read into it a lot because as a in the closet gay man i was like identifying with this pig who was like, no, I want to go and be a sheepdog. I don't want to be a pig that's just just destined to be in this barn. I want to go and do other things. And so personally, that narrative in the movie really appealed to me. And I thought it was such a phenomenal way that as a human, they humanized a pig. That it had emotions, it had stories had feelings and it's kind of dark when you think about it because that's not the reality for a lot of pigs but that allegory of using the farm and kind of using it as a narrative tool i think was so beautiful and then just to have the soft 
music that was included and like the old timey song that uh Huff Farmer Hoggett sings to Pig at the end and it just is such a a wonderful story, a heartwarming story that I always find myself attracted to and I always find myself drawn to. But I think when it came to the animals genre, I really wanted to include Babe because I think it was such an important part of my childhood. But also, just like the entire movie itself is fascinating. And I haven't even seen the sequel, but I've heard it's actually just as good, if not better than the first. And again, I, I find that fascinating. Like, as a sequel, uh, those are supposed to be awful. And I, you know, I have a lot of faith in George Miller. I actually think he, he can tell some really interesting stories, even if it is a sequel to Babe, Pig, in the City. <laughs> if I had words to make a day for you, I'd give you a morning golden and true. What are your guys' thoughts on Jaws and Babe? To start with Babe first, like this is a good old like Australian movie made good. Like all so many really integral Australian filmmakers are involved. But like you mentioned, the George Miller connection is huge. And the sequel is just as great. And I think that there's a sweet spot here in the mid 90s that just seemed to do that extremely well. I think about Home Alone, Home Alone 2. Like those are two mm -hmm. really strong, like first and second movies. And Babe did the exact same thing. And to, it's interesting that Miller, who wrote the first one or, or helped adapt the screenplay for the first one, then directed the second one. So it's nice to have that through line. And it just seems like he has a really smart sense about filmmaking. I mean, the Mad Max movies are so completely different from Babe, but really well done. And you can kind of see just that understanding of cinema and understanding of how to tell a story extremely well. So it's nice to see that connection there. And yeah, this was childhood for me and my sister. We loved watching Babe and Babe Pig in the City. Like those were our things in the early 90s. It was always lovely to just pop them into the VCR and, and take a look and watch. Um, the music for this is is lovely. Like I think the pastoral sort of farm setting is exactly what you said, Anthony. It's really a lovely set, like scape for, for this to be set in. And I don't think Babe can really go under the radar because it was a huge success. Mm. It, it grossed too far. $254 million worldwide on a budget of $30 million. It was nominated for seven damn Oscars, winning one of them for best visual effects that year. Like, that's just, it's crazy to think about just how successful that movie really was. And it was up against Apollo 13. There were only the two of them nominated. But when you think about Apollo 13 being the spectacle marvel that it was, or the visual marvel that it was, and it looking like they were actually sending Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton up into space for Babe to dominate and to win the Oscar that year. It's it's saying something for that special effects crew and the success of the movie. So it was a delight to return to it. I mean, it's always lovely to kind of get that hit of nostalgia. But Babe really does kind of speak to a very specific time in my adolescence. And it was nice to kind of revisit. Jason, before going into Jaws, do you want to talk about Babe if you have any interaction there? It's limited because i mean you know 1995 <laughs> uh these sort of films were like the very last thing that yeah. was like front of mind i mean i was like you know newly out of high school trying to like navigate but you know i will say that kind of like homeward bound and some other films that come to mind like it was just super cutesy 
And I don't know, there's just something about the way the voice acting is in these movies that, I don't know, it's just, I think maybe that's the thing that sticks out to me most from all of these films. You know, like, I'm looking this up now because I had to, Christine Cavanaugh is like, babe, like, I just remember that voice, yeah, uh, like, yeah. kind of like stuck in my head or like, because it was Michael J. Fox or whatever that was like in the Homeward Bound series, yep. right? Like, yes. Him or am I confusing Field. that with something else? Like, no, Michael yeah, J. yeah. Fox. Sally um, Field and Don Amici. Yeah, it's just some of that. Like uh, the the films are kind of instantly forgettable to me, just because again, young adult thinking of <laughs> a bunch of other things aside from these type of films. But yeah, I, I remember the the voices and just the cutesiness of it, and that not gonna sit here and be like you know i was like all blown away by it i just thought they were cute stories i actually probably have a lot more to say oddly enough about jaws i was a a young kid or whatever when jaws was a thing and i saw it and it didn't screw me up out of wanting to swim i actually enjoy swimming quite a bit but i do remember how and i didn't necessarily make the connection to these uh at the moment but how it kind of like spawned a whole bunch of similar knockoffs shortly thereafter between like harana barracuda or like all of these oh, oh yeah yeah like yes. all these films that were like the killer animal you know some animal we don't understand very well in the uh in the water that you know was gonna come in like destroy you to bits or whatever but you know i think the thing that sort of grabs me about jaws is outside of that extremely well used plot device of the strings and like the dunna dunna i struggle to think about anything else musically in that film like i mean it really was a means to an end like it was cue the shark man like the shark is gonna get in that ass like somebody is ah! about to die every time you heard that music but i don't remember anything else musically about that film but it was great at the time i mean obviously you know compared to what we have available in films now it, it just looks kind of crazy in retrospect but at the time it was like well, yeah, that, that's kind of scary, and I, I don't want to get eaten by a great white. And then, you know, fast forward to where I learned about where great whites are, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not really a threat. So, okay, <laughs> never mind, I'm not too concerned. <laughs> I didn't really see Jaws until I was much into adulthood. I actually only saw it for the first time, I believe, about seven or eight years ago. So I didn't have that sort of childhood connection to it. But of course, being kind of a, a, a fan of movies, I always looked into those sorts of legendary movies that affected people hugely. And I know Jaws like completely like crushed a lot of individuals' interest in getting into the water, where something like the Lassophobia, which is like the fear of deep waters, is like now a prevalent term that's known and people are posting about how messed up they are about thinking about just the black waters and not being able to understand it or see it and really get a sense of it. I know Jaws contributed to that huge wasn't that like the tagline of the film like don't go in the water or yeah, like, yeah 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 it was like yep it and anthony you put it perfectly like jaws being the first sort of summer blockbuster meant that so many people saw it and so many people were affected by it so it was really interesting to watch it the first time i did and yeah the john williams score is epic like to be so simplistic and to take the place of a visual representation of the big bad that we are all worried about. And that's kind of what's really great about horror or thriller or that sort of thing. Some of the best ones are when you don't see the bad guy or you don't see the, the creature until like the very, very end of the movie. And I'm sure, Anthony, you could rattle off just a list of really great horror where you don't see your killer up front. 
the more you can get visceral and basic and hit people to the core with just a simple couple notes back and forth played on uh, whatever it is, a double bass or a cello. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie. So great. Such a fantastic score. But Jason, you're absolutely right, too. If you asked me to name any other music that was within, within that movie, I'm pulling up nothing. Like, I'm not going to be able to say anything other than just the classic sort of Jaws. Dun, dun. That's it. That's all I've got. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting because this is like one of John Williams' first scores and like one early on in his career. So, uh, yeah, I think he knocked it out of the park, but I would agree. I'm like, ugh. Anyway, I don't want to like offend anybody with like my anti-John Williams. It's not that I am anti-John Williams. It's just more of like he's so ingrained in so many pieces of soundtrack literature and history and like it's important to honor and respect the those pioneers that came before, but also at the same time, getting too stuck on their early works, I think can be detrimental to be like, yes, that's good. And it was effective, but I mean, I'm also interested in whatever John Williams did afterwards and some of the other stuff that he branched out. And I've talked about my love for his home alone score. So I think that to me is more interesting than focusing on, Jaws is the best piece of soundtrack, you know, the best soundtrack ever. And I'm like, well, it's all subjective, right? Like, everybody has their own opinion. And on that note, I will say that one of the best things about Jaws is the sequels. Because, man, did they fuck those up. It was like, (laughs) with each sequel, they would use less music and more shark. And you're like, wow, I like, did you not see the original Jaws? So by the time they get to Jaws 4, when they're in the Bahamas and Michael Caine's like, I'm a British guy, but I'm here to save you. And you're like, <laughs> oh, I don't know how this went off the rails so bad, but I really like it. I mean, it's technically not the origin of that whole jumping the shark phrase, <laughs> but it really should have been. Yeah, man, they, it, put it, yeah they stunk. Really. Just pure, pure garbage. Man's deepest fear has risen again. Jaws, the revenge. This time, it's personal. Thanks for that, Anthony. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, that, that was that was a great sal- <laughs> uh, opening salvo for sure. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I, I wasn't sure where I was going to get in, but I, I, Don, if you don't mind, I kind of want to hop in because... I, I sort of went into this with sort of like a happy and a sad, but then mine sort of became a sad and a God damn, that was racist. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm <laughs> all right. So here we go. I'm, I'm going to talk about Marley and me because, you know, and I didn't rewatch that film for this. I'm just going off of my old memories on that. I did try to listen to as much of that score as I could after the fact, really kind of complicated like it doesn't have much of a presence unless you like go through spotify and i you know i'm not for anything political or anything like that i just i'm not a spotify user i just that isn't the way i consume music on any level but like usually pretty able to like hop on youtube search for something and like listen to it out or something like that a lot more complicated like it was only bits and pieces and even commercially not readily available which i'm kind of like huh that's interesting and i wonder what's up with that but i i picked marley me and you know this is kind of an oddly personal thing, but, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, my dog passing last summer, and I wasn't even sure. It's part of the reason why I didn't rewatch it, just because I don't think I'm there yet. And actually, it's maybe maybe even worse for me now, because 
looking at like all of the uh, properties of the film or whatever, like I was like, God damn, Marley looks a lot like Daisy. Hell, she's just a puppy. And it's like, you know, it's bad enough that I'm in my head enough when like any slightly weird thing happens with her. So it's like, I, I can't necessarily relive that trauma just yet. But I think that's what made that film as powerful as it was. Because it really is. It's really... You know, I've become a bit of a sap in my older age. Like, I never used to be that emotionally affected by films. But now it's like, hell, even as I was, like, rewatching Jungle Book for the purposes of this, I felt the eyes getting a little moist or whatever towards the end. Like, you know, when they thought Baloo was dead. And I was like, but I know how this ends. But it's just like, I don't know where I'm at in my life. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe with like a little more tragedy and like sadness and just sort of jaded adultness that is my middle 40 something year old life. It hit a little different. just like one of those things that it was so really well done and like the music which theodore shapiro i didn't even know he was a like a factor in so many other films that i had seen and like kind of appreciated like even down to idiocracy which i was like no shit like really like he did that uh wow that's wild but anyways i think what made the music in marley and me interesting though is just how it really sort of chronicled all the aspects of like the pet parent experience like i mean there there was happier music the one song that is readily available on youtube is just super super sad it's an instant tearjerker and it's like one of those things where i'm kind of glad that i don't have that soundtrack because i would be in my feels every (laughs) single time i replayed it but all that to say that it's just it was really well done like i mean i think the it's one of those films where the music complements the story perfectly and you know when things are sort of happy or chaotic the music sort of fit in and when you know when things took a turn the music was right there nothing felt out of place in that film Just even the thought of like being an animal lover and just sort of like knowing what it's like to sort of become endeared to a being that I think for anybody who's had a dog or cat will say that their lifespans are way too short for all the the happiness they bring to our lives, which is I guess sort of selfish to say out loud, but it's it's true. It's like they're they're better than you know all those signs that say they're better than people. It, it's the truth, and you know it's and for all the chaos that they may cause from time to time in our lives or whatever, it's like it really ends up being way more worth it than not. Like you, you may remember some of those things in hindsight, but not so much. That's sort of my experience with Marley and me and uh, the extent that I wanted to say something about that. Now, Jungle Book, 
so I think you guys, I mean, we're not that far removed in age. I don't know what your experience was like with the Disney day offs or, you know, just sort of like those days that Disney sort of dominated the television airwaves. But I remember that like, there was a time that they even had commercials for, I think, a set of cassettes that, like, had, like, all of the Disney music yes, on them. Yes, And in that, they would highlight some of, like, their really notable songs. And I Want to Be Like You and The Bare Necessities were definitely songs that they highlighted. And from that sort of childhood lens, those songs were brilliant. I mean, the bare necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander. Without any context, they're just stupid happy songs, right? <laughs> but as I'm rewatching The Jungle Book, and I was struck by something that Disney uh, Plus does now that I had never seen them do before. They actually open with a disclaimer saying that, yeah, there were some really screwed up things that were in this film, but we didn't take it out because it we feel like it's an important conversation to have. And I saw that at the beginning, I was like, hmm... What are they talking about? I don't remember this being like, I don't think that they did anything that was too terribly offensive. And then I got, I guess, about halfway through the film and I was like, oh. Oh. You're like, oh, right. Oh, God. This is, you know, so the the freaking monkeys, man, as a kid, never occurred to me that they were voiced a particular way or, you know, that they were really kind of demonizing jazz. But then I looked back and I was like, oh, this is 1967. Yeah, okay, this makes sense. And, you know, I mean, so between the fact that, like, the, the monkeys were all, like, seemingly black voices and there's, like, a whole lot to unpack with that. Because if they weren't black voices, they were people that were trying really hard to imitate that and... That makes me like think about Family Guy and like what well, the one black dude's. Uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. that I'm Cleveland, uh, Cleveland's voice or whatever. And that always kind of irked me. But anyways, I'm digressing a little bit. The monkeys were all clearly voiced to sound black if they weren't all black voice actors. And then you know again the demonization of jazz and just like all the stupid stereotypes that were omnipresent in that particular segment of the film. And I was like, oh, this is kind of screwed up. I can't look at this song in the exact same way anymore. It, it took all the shine off. It really, really did. So what was going to be sort of my happy and sort of sad contrast was like sad and meh. Like, <laughs> it was, you know, there was also a part that felt, weird at the very end of the film because there really was no sexual element to the entire film until the very end and then they really hypersexualized this one little girl that the main character meets at the very end and i was like ew yeah like yeah <laughs> like you're going to have him discover puberty at the very end of the film when this film was absolutely nothing about sex whatsoever. Like, that's just, I mean, this is the first human he's seeing and his reaction is like, okay, I'm Twitter pated. Like, I <laughs> don't, uh, that was unnecessary. But all that to say that the music that was, and I, I obviously never noticed this before but like uh robert and richard sherman and then i think like sort of overall done by like george bruns i guess is how you say it and then there were like some songs from the soundtrack that some other folks did but they were kind of uh scrubbed from doing the entire thing because like they they took it 
somewhere that was truer to the original story, but was yeah. much darker than what uh, Disney wanted to do. And then knowing that that was like the last film that Disney, uh, Walt Disney himself, like had anything to do with before he passed away. There's a whole crap ton to unpack with all of the film. But yeah, I, I guess that was my sort of takeaway from rewatching that and thinking about the music. It's like, yeah, the music is all really cool. I Want to Be Like You is still a classic song, but its implementation in that particular segment of the film was really flawed. And I just, I, you know, I wish I could still look at and listen to that song with my sort of kid ears, but, you know, alas, the damage is done. So what do you guys think about those two? There are definitely areas of the Disney vault that Disney wants to keep closed and behind and never released. And it's the racism is so blatant. It goes from things like Song of the South, which I get it. Like, that's way before Jungle Book. But then you get to, like, Jungle Book. And we're into, like, the late 60s. Like, come on, guy. You're still doing this awful depiction of who the monkeys are supposed to represent. Like, come on. Like, this is just ridiculous. And I'm of the same mind. Like, there are so many innocent moments with those Disney classics that I would never have perceived the way that I perceive them now. And that's just age and understanding and that will completely destroy any memories or images that i have of those and jungle book is right up there as being tops like it is a horrible depiction and then like you mentioned like even getting into the sexualization at the end like in re-watching it as well where did this extra plot device come in why did it come in what was the purpose of it and and really what's the end goal of it? it just it made no sense and the jungle book is fantastic it's a shame that there's such this horrible black cloud that hovers above it that's just storming and crashing any memories of it but it's a really unpleasant depiction just you can't get around it and it's a shame because i love the music you have bruns doing some amazing stuff after such a, a long run of doing things like sword in the stone sleeping beauty 101 dalmatians like he's a, a legend in the disney animated classics and it's a shame that this is such a tarnished mark there because his music's great it's just associated with such awful unpleasant imagery yeah, I will agree with you guys in that when I watched this when I was younger, zero a conscious understanding of any of that discussion. But again, yes, definitely upon rewatch, you get a different perspective of it. Interestingly enough, did either of you see the Jungle Book remake that Disney did? Like I that? did. And how did you like that? I actually thought that was really good. Same. Yeah. I, I watched it. I cried at the really big pivotal moment. There was emotional climax that I actually did cry. But I 100% thought that that was improvement over the cartoon. I thought there was a better structure. I thought they removed all the problematic elements with regards to the race allegory with monkeys. I thought it was a great story. I thought the visual of the talking animals was really well done. Um, and so I will agree. I have positive child. Actually, side note, I don't have necessarily a positive childhood memory with Jungle Book because the first time I saw it, it was on TV. And interestingly enough, when you said that, Jason, I was, I was probably about like three or four years old. So this is probably like 83, 84. And it's on TV and I'm super excited. And I accidentally burned my hand on the oven. Like I reached up and it was the element was on and I didn't know. And I put my hand on it. And so I oh. burned my hand and it like I had the ring on my hand and everything. And it was just awful. It was big screaming and blah, blah, blah. so I finally get settled down and they're like putting my hand in ice water. And I'm like having to go to bed. And they were like, you, you can't watch Jungle Book. You have to go to bed. 
And I remember the pain at that point. I was just like, I don't care about my hand. I want to watch Jungle Book. <laughs> so uh, I always was like, man, Jungle Book burned me bad. But when I watched that new one, I was like, oh, interestingly enough, they actually made a better version of the Jungle Book. But I didn't like the music as much. <laughs> like, mm. I preferred the original versions. I was like, okay, yeah, the, the overall movie is better. But I actually prefer the original songs. So, yeah, I it's a really good choice. I think the Jungle Book is such a staple animal movie and talking animal movie because it really does you know, use Kipling's books as the basis, but it really shied away from, like, some of the darker stuff that I do think was handled a lot better in the remake, including the removal of that over-sexualization peach, which it's so funny. Again, when I, like, I remember that scene as a kid. I'm like, oh, yeah, Mowgli meets the girl at the end, and then they go and, you know, be human. But it wasn't until that you even said the over-sexualization, and it's all of a sudden the, the scene came back to my mind, and I'm just like, oh my God, how did I not read this as a kid? Like, maybe subconsciously I did, but consciously I was not reading that whatsoever. Yeah, it's just so weird because they're both little kids and she's talking about, like, finding her husband, like, really? And then she sashays away, like, into her big doe eyes. Yeah, and and they're just, just... the body movements especially, I remember, being very, like, whoa, I'm a sexy lady. And you're like, that's a kid. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, that's a kid. What are you doing? Why would you do that, Disney? Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, we're marking on the time frame of this, and it's the last movie that Disney worked on. This actually begins a decade of Disney's troubled animation. So I think Robin Hood comes out after this, or something else comes out, and then Robin Hood is like one of their last big hits. And then that really starts a, a decline for Disney animation, is that they really enter the hard parts of, they go into a 10-year decline, they're focusing on their parks. So their Disney animation and talking animal movies kind of slows to a halt for about a decade. Uh, and then obviously we get the resurgence we've talked we've talked about a lot in the late 80s, but Jungle Book is an interesting entry in the Disney history. And I'm glad to ha- hear that they added the disclaimer at the beginning, because credit goes to Warner Brothers. They did that like 20 years ago they started to release some of their old videos on um, DVD and they include disclaimers to be like we don't endorse this we think it's wrong to erase a part of our history and it's important to acknowledge these prejudices when you're viewing them you know that that's a good point too because I mean I it, it gave me the same sort of like cringe vibes as like you know Tom and Jerry or like you know, some select like Bugs Bunny like uh cartoons or whatever where they The Hitler years, let's call it they, what it is. Yeah, they they go there. Yeah, well like yeah, the whole the the treatment of uh Japanese in in yes. Warner Brothers, the treatment of uh other blacks. I mean like there are a few moments they had Warner Brothers has those moments too, but Tom and Jerry was like I think the worst. I as a kid I certainly didn't know what Mammy was, but you know, that that whole trope that they they rode so hard mm-hmm. through a lot of that series it's just like oh man i want i just want to like the stuff i like as a kid man like why so marley and me i have a hard time watching animals pass on screen it's probably harder for me to watch than humans 
I don't know why, and I, I think a lot of people can relate to this, but dying animals on screen is a really hard thing for me. And I find it to be very emotionally impactful. And so I remember seeing the trailer for Marley and Me and being very condescending and very like dismissive and be like what a stupid movie and it was 100% a defense mechanism because I knew that I was like oh that dog is gonna die like there is no way that movie is ending with that dog living so uh, I remember trying to watch the scene in which Owen Wilson is saying goodbye and I couldn't last more than 30 seconds and I was just a blubbering mess and it was too emotional and it was just it's really interesting to me that some of those movies are kind of off limits for me like you even I remember one of the reasons why I didn't really uh, choose it, but Turner and Hooch. I don't know if you've either of you have ever seen the original Tom Hanks movie, but that movie destroyed me. Absolutely destroyed me. And I don't care how many baby puppies are coming out and, you know, we're supposed to be happy. I just, I got, I lost it. I have not watched the entirety of Marley and Me because of that. Um, and so that was a really hard thing for me to even go back to now and like try and see if I was like, all right, can I handle this? No, it's a real, uh, a something that a reality bite for me that is a little too real. And sometimes I can't handle in movies. I'm the exact same way. I have not seen Marley and me out of purpose. I can't do those movies. I cannot watch movies where I have two different ca categories. I, I can't watch animals that are going to die. And I, now I can't watch spouses, like movies oh, where there's yeah, that yeah. contest. Try to watch P.S. I Love You upon recommendation of my wife. And it was like five minutes in. And I was like, nope, can't do it. I'm going to go through eight boxes of Kleenex in this thing. Because I am an emotional watcher. I have more emotion when I'm watching movies or TV shows than I do in like real life. In real life, I can kind of compartmentalize and I can focus on, all right, this is the reality of the situation and I need to focus on this, yada, yada, yada. But in movies, I can release. The defensive walls aren't up because it's not, a, it's not me. Movies, I can let the walls down and it just hits me. And I've always been that way. Like, And as I grow older, similar to what you're kind of saying, Jason, I think it just gets worse and worse and worse. And in looking at having two cats of our own and uh, one of them is diabetic and who knows what the situation is going to be there and we're trying to manage that. And I just I, it hits too hard, too real, too close to everything for me to really get into movies like that purposefully. What I do want to talk about with Marley and Me is something that you kind of talked about, Jason, and that's with Theodore Shapiro, how it's interesting that this is a an individual who's associated with so many really good scores, but has flown so far under the radar. And I think that's the beauty of when a composer gets in with a group of filmmakers. And I think you can kind of take a look at this individual's filmography and you can see kind of who they've gotten in with. It's kind of that sort of, I think they call them the frat pack. It's Vince Vaughn, it's Ben Stiller, it's Owen Wilson, uh, the guy who played Marshall from How I Met Your Mother, Jason Segel. Like, it just seems to be that group of filmmakers and creators that they just kind of stick together. And of course, with Idiocracy, that drifts into Luke Wilson and Mike Judge and kind of connecting that way. So it's interesting how that one individual has really connected with a whole slew of different movies. And the scores are lovely. Like you said, the one song at the end, and I listened to that, it all runs together is so 
somber and so just emotionally powerful. But this individual isn't like a John Williams. He hasn't kind of stood atop and won Oscars and tons of like prestigious awards. He's won a ton of awards from like the Filmmakers Association, which is fantastic. But it's interesting that this person's sort of career has been really sort of even keel, but has done some really impactive music. I'm sure it's fantastic, the rest of the score. Again, I just, I can't get into it. Well, I don't fault you for that. I think when I first watched Marley and Me, it was like one of those, I'm not going to cry. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a big guy. (laughs) (laughs) Then I got to the end and I was just a mess. And I was like, well, (laughs) failed. Um, I find myself having this other thing too, like with certain films that like, I almost have like a motor reflex, like reaction to certain scenes and films. Which, you know, thankfully I've never smacked anybody or anything like that. But, like, something that has stuck out with me ever since I've seen it is, like, that one uh, bayonet scene with, like, uh, Saving Private Ryan or whatever. Oh, gosh. The slow stab. The slow. Oh. Dude. Oh. Freaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, crap like that sticks with me. And, like, sometimes I will have involuntary motor reactions to certain things on mm. film. And I'm just mm. like, um, I don't want yeah. this to go left. All that to say that Marley and Me was uh, everything I was afraid it was going to be. And it had a much more impact on me than I thought. And I don't know. I haven't had to deal with much personal grief in my life up to this point. Like, I've seen you know plenty of people pass away or things like that but they haven't necessarily been that close to me like kirby is like the first being that it's really like was super close to me that i had to say goodbye to i think that would be really really hard to relive and i think kind of half afraid of like having some random moment where something sort of just triggers like another round of grief that like you know like i've i won't say moved away from but isn't sort of right front of mind anymore I think you did some really good choices, Jason, to talk about the emotional um, concepts um, with animal movies. Because, again, there's always, like, you know, I talked about the fear, I talked about the joy, now we're talking about the grief. Like, I really do think that this has been a a wonderful discussion. And we're only two people into it. We still have Don's (laughs) movies to go through. Bring it home, Don. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to talk about all the racism in Disney. No. (laughs) No. Um, Oddly enough, my my first selection does link kind of at the very tail end of what you were talking about, Jason, with The Jungle Book. And that's those last few great years of Walt Disney. And for me, my favorite animal-based film from Disney is Robin Hood. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other has to say. Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day. The classic retelling of the Robin Hood tale with animals in place of all the characters and some of kind of the classic Disney animal characters replaying characters in a different facet. Because in Robin Hood, you have Little John, or yeah, you have Little John played basically by Baloo. 
And there's lots of really great videos online of how the animation from Robin Hood does mirror a lot of the classic animation sequences from previous Disney works. There's a dancing scene, which is basically copied straight from Snow White. I think that's what they tried to do with Robin Hood. I don't know if it was just the circumstances of what was happening because it was kind of at that tail end. Disney's maybe starting to take a step back or physically is kind of no longer there because they've died. Like, I don't know what the what the situation was with Robin Hood. But I still do think they did a really bang up job with telling that story, utilizing really interesting characters and kind of getting a historical tale told in a really interesting way. For me, the music is also stellar. And I just I love the character animation. I love the movie as as a whole. The songs, the music are lovely. And it just has that almost similar to what Winnie the Pooh was bringing in that let's open up the storybook and the pages are animated and we're flipping through it and we've got a narrator and we're taking you through this classic story. I love it. I love the animation of it. The whole structure of it is just really enjoyable. But I'm sure if I went back to it, which I I didn't do for this episode, which I probably should have, I'm sure there's maybe some things that I would be looking at in a different lens, but it's still a lovely sort of story that's being put together. And when I think about animal movies, I think about Robin Hood. That was the first thing that really came to mind when we were talking about this episode. And I know that it's probably going to stray into what we want to do with Disney down the road, because I think it is, just as was talked about, it is that last sort of gasp or grasp at the the golden goose that is the classic a- uh, animated series. Then they kill the goose, and then they have to try and find a new one with Little Mermaid. So it'll be interesting to see where that kind of sits and what Robin Hood did or didn't do to continue the legacy of um, Walt Disney Animation. But for me, it's a classic and I love it. Too late to be known as John the First. He's sure to be known as John the Worst. A pox on that phony king of England. Lay that country on me, babe. The other thing that I wanted to bring to this table, and I think it kind of connects up with some of the other things that we've been talking about, and it's our first foray into a TV series, and it's the Planet Earth Blue Planet series, the the BBC documentaries. Oh my god. Yeah, with Sir David Attenborough just doing unbelievable work as he has been doing for like 50 or 60 years of his damn life to look at the importance of the environment and understanding conservation and what he has been able to do, not only just in his entire life, but with just these two most recent iterations of planet earth and and the blue planet. I mean, he's always been focused on the message, but now he has the technological capacity to capture the beauty and the struggle and the, the desperation that is our damn planet. I think Planet Earth is beautiful, of course. Both are beautiful, but Planet Earth, I think, provides just this unbelievable look at what we all classically know. We know all of the animals that are being provided. There are some, obviously, there's some obscure animals that he is able to find or the researchers are able to find. But classically, we're seeing elephants in Africa, cheetahs on the Serengeti. Here's what's happening in the rainforest in South America. Like, there are familiar locations that we've seen through lenses like Disney, like other animated classics, like just film, in a 
very sort of fictionalized novel way, but now we're seeing the practical and we get to really get a sense of animal life as it just kind of lives out and how we're affecting it or affected by it. And I, it's hugely impactful and powerful. It's unbelievable what they do, but to link it to what Anthony, you were providing with Jaws, then we get into Blue Planet where we're starting to drift into underwater, which is classically an area that so little is known about by the masses like we if it's not in our face or above ground or put into a disney movie we know nothing about it basically So now we go under the water and we're starting to see some really interesting stuff and just how much further developed or damaged it is by human interaction. What they were able to do with the technology that's available now and putting it out there into the world on HD and IMAX and 4K and every other beautiful cinematic device that they have access to with beautiful scores done by, and I want to get the the individual um the name right george fenton george fenton has has is another one of those sort of composers who's just been around forever doing work for tons of different people like he works a ton with richard Attenborough. he's done stuff with Nora efron with um ken loach like there's so many different connections that he just has and he scores it so beautifully but even more than the score even more than the visuals is the narration by attenborough himself i mean you're getting directly from the mouth of probably history's greatest conservationist and nature documentarian is this realistic depiction of what's happening, an explanation of what's going on, and then the connection to what we're doing to these creatures, to the world, with our ways and our antics. So it's a brilliant series that I'm sure once we do experience the loss of Sir Attenborough, we're going to, I mean, hopefully put a lot more emphasis into conservation and (laughs) but yeah like we're gonna do it anyway we already know the threats of of what we're experiencing but it seems like it takes loss for people to wake up and really get going with it but who knows what's going to happen but fortunately he's been able to have such a great career that he's been able to provide us with these snapshots of what earth was at this point and rather than looking outward and beyond earth it's all been compartmentalized and contained within our small planet and looking at just what has been here and the animals and the creatures and just the environments that we've been able to impact negatively, positively, whatever, and just provide us with that depiction of just what is happening in the animal kingdom on such a a fantastic, beautiful, brilliant level. I'm sure we could do episodes upon episodes of just individual kind of shots and and things. I mean, we, I know the big thing from the most recent was the, there was, I believe a lizard running across the scape of like all these pythons or snakes, like jumping at it. And it was just so intense. A snake's eyes aren't very good, but they can detect movement. So if the hatchling keeps its nerve, it may just avoid detection. They're just beautiful, they're wonderful, and they're eye-opening. They are extremely sad as well to see 
like the stories about what's no longer happening or it's not as dark as say like some elements of march of the penguins it's more deeply impactful it seems rather than just being sad like it's just deeply fundamentally and to my core sad as to like listening to these stories and knowing that within decades within my lifetime how many of these species are going to be gone? How many of these environments are just going to be completely eroded to to become deserted wastelands? Like it's it's so frustrating and it's it's hard to watch, but it's beautiful to watch all at the same time. Yeah, I think you've said that really well. I think that really is like the dualities of the, the Planet Earth series and the Blue Planet series that I love so much is that I get to see so much of the world's beauty and it's constructed and edited in such a wonderful way and such a, a tight narrative that you really forget that this is a documentary and you just, it flows so naturally that it all of a sudden will slam reality right in your face and be like, yes, this is absolutely beautiful, but there's also the the impact that humans have had on this. And I think the, the second series, uh, the Planet Earth 2, really highlighted that and really kind of emphasized each episode the impact of the human cycle or the human life cycle on the rest of the earth and so i think you knocked it out of the park when you're you know bringing it back to these animal experiences which are shared with humans and as much as we want to say you know yeah it's devastating when a pet dies and it's even more devastating when an entire species dies out and we have the capability to stop that one of the i guess random things about me is like there was a good chunk of my life where i fancied myself wanting to be something like a marine biologist and like growing up with like all of those like pbs shows like uh, it was like the marty the marty stouffer's the like when they used to show some of like the the jacques Cousteau sort of like a series or there are a few other famous names and I'm like they're failing me now but like there were a whole bunch of people that had like their sort of niche on just like those channels going through like nature in like various forms I think the message perhaps a lot less dire because some of the stuff that we understand like we are still taking for granted now like are a lot more in your face like I don't think back when I was a kid like climate change or whatever was much of a subject because i think it was just at that point that it was kind of really being understood like oh crap there's something going on here that doesn't seem right anyway i i guess i say all that to say that his voice in those series is just like that is like pretty iconic like in the same way that you know you mentioned march of the penguins that like when you hear like morgan freeman like talking it's like you know exactly who that is those series like there's so many things to pick apart about those series i mean because visually they're stunning like especially the blue planet stuff like some of the scenes that are shown underwater like nature is just amazing like it really it really is but then with the planet earth going from sort of biome to biome going from like you know the desert the savanna the rain you know like rainforest to like the ice caps or whatever or like you know like everything in between and all the different animals and stuff that they like they talk about and the ones that we're unfortunately having a really negative impact on because of overfishing or hunting or you know what we're doing to the environment i think to me what it does better than anything else is just emphasizes the i guess the fear of loss you Mm -hmm. know what i mean it's like all these really amazing creatures that you may never in your lifetime actually interact with outside of the zoo are at risk of just not being here anymore and not because they just died on their own i mean lots of things over the course of history have gone extinct but 
because of us. Like, you know, they're all behaviors that we could potentially change in some way. But unfortunately, a lot of folks just don't care. I think these documentaries like those that you mentioned are helpful in terms of at least maybe getting some people at the margins to understand the importance of their actions. But unfortunately, it's like the the folks that really need to see those seldomly do. Robin Hood, that's really kind of a curious Disney film to me because I kind of, I remember it and I think maybe after this I'll probably go rewatch it just because it's been eons since I've seen it. Of all the Disney films that stick out to me, it, that one doesn't stick out in the way it appeared to stick out for you, Don. And I don't know if that's just, I don't know what that is because it's like The Jungle Book and the Robin Hood, they're both before I was born by a good amount. It's just one I had a lot of exposure to, one I had some exposure to, but like it, I, I guess it just didn't hit me in any particular way. And that's that's kind of how I felt about Robin Hood. Now, I mean, there are lots of tellings of Robin Hood, the story that like I've enjoyed over time. But aside from the fact that I love foxes, uh, like you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what else to say about Robin Hood per se. Like I'm assuming there must be some theme or two that's notable in that film but when i think about like famous disney music all the songs the the titles that come readily to mind i can't think of a single one from robin hood which i don't know if that's just me not remembering or maybe it not being marketed properly or what but like i don't remember there being a notable track yeah, for me, it's it's probably just because I know it. It's something like Oodalali. Yeah. Like, I, I know it because I've been exposed to it. They're not the most popular, for sure. Okay. But that I'm, I'm sure it's, I again, I love Robin Hood the story as a story. And I'm sure if I watched it now, I would be entertained by it. But, like, I just don't remember it well. Like, it didn't make as much of an impact as some of the other films from that period. Um, so, similar to my Jungle Book experience, I don't know why you both chose these movies. But, I mean, they both have kind of hard stories for me in the childhood. One, I burned my hand with Jungle Book. With Robin Hood, we were being babysat at um, a neighbor's house, and she was trying to make popcorn, and the oil spilled and caused a kitchen fire, and we had to, like, run out of the house, and my dad is a firefighter, or was a firefighter, and so he was at work, and he heard the call come in to the house where his kids were being babysat at. (laughs) So, like, he ended up having to, like, ride over and thinking that his kids were in the fire. Oh, jeez. And meanwhile, we were up the street watching Robin Hood. Anthony? <laughs> are, are, are you good? Are you? <laughs> I think it's okay. Uh, yeah, I guess. I'm, I'm really just digging into my old trauma for this wow. episode. So, let's <laughs> dig in a little further. All right. But, yeah, right. totally. Like, I remember... That day, clear as day, that the fire was happening and we were all rushed out of the house. Wow. And then to kind of calm us down, they took us down the street and they put on Robin Hood. And I remember watching Robin Hood and seeing the fire in my brain at the same time. So I was just watching <laughs> Robin Hood and I'm just like, 
There was a fire in the kitchen, Robin Hood. There was a fire in the kitchen, Robin Hood. <laughs> and so I ended up really liking Robin Hood. I don't know why. I was like, I just found it fun. I, it was a, a good distraction, I guess. But, and I started really liking fire. Yeah, for some reason. I started to fire. really be in. And actually, I'm not going to lie, that's actually did what happened. Because about three or four years later, we were caught playing with matches. Oh my god. I'm not okay, you guys. I'm not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway, Robin Hood, it's good. (laughs) But if I could really pull it back... uh, I don't know if I want to go down this road, but I'm going to do it anyway. So... Robin Hood, to me, is also, again, it's such a a good story. I think it's a good interpretation of the the lore of Robin Hood. But what's really funny is in the online communities and then the online kind of spaces that I've been in, some of the original furry art comes down to Robin Hood. And Robin Hood is often cited as, like, one of the number one films that kind of triggered a lot of furry kinks and so so that's the end of even the score thank you very much for this episode <laughs> exactly i was like well listen we were talking about slut pop at the beginning we were being really raunchy and we were like getting really a horny af and i was like oh i i hope we end on robin hood because i'm definitely bringing that point out that i'm like i also think about robin hood as being like the birth of furry culture <laughs> i'm like it's unfortunate no, it's not unfortunate. I just don't know what to say. But that's my little <laughs> tidbit of information for this episode that, you know. You know, it's ironic. The other day I was like looking at our own um, our own spot on Apple Podcast or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I noticed for the first time that our rating is clean. And I was like, uh... and, and then we had this episode today. And I'm like, well, that's been shot to hell. Yeah, we tried. <laughs> Wonder that what really the next did. level is. That little E is coming up quick and fast, my friends. <laughs> oh mercy, we are going places this episode. I like it. Wow. Oh, it's it's interesting that there's. I mean, everything that we're kind of referring to in this episode, we all have those sorts of places we can go to, dark or otherwise. Yeah. As, you can count as, on or soft for... and warm, apparently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It seems like only yesterday You were just a child at play Well, that went places. <laughs> but fun places, interesting. It was good stuff. This was uh, an enjoyable episode. And I think it brings us to what I believe we're all calling the end of season two mm. of our podcast. I think we've really, we've exhausted the genres we want to talk about at this point. I'm not saying we'll never come back to genre study. Who knows? That could be a future season. We have good plans, big plans for what's coming up next. But this was a really fun way to end it. Not only with the last episode that we recorded being such fun with the cult classics, but this was, this we definitely went some really fun interesting dark weird places with this one and i think that's the perfect place to really end it there's no further to go 
than to stop here and look towards the future, which is what we're exactly going to be doing. We're figuring that the next few episodes for the podcast are going to be kind of a between-season special, similar to what we did over the summer break where we were just trying to find something to to fill the space that wasn't very specific. We're going to do the same between Season 2 and Season 3, which we don't know what's going to come up in Season 3, so we're going to have some fun with it. So continue to listen to us. Um, We're going to be putting out our episodes on the regular again. We're going to have some fun with it. We have some really interesting things that we want to talk about, and we want to make sure that you're listening. And to do that, you find us on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are there. Go ahead and give us a review. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, five stars would be fantastic. Uh, Subscribe to our show, share episodes with people that you know would enjoy some interesting conversations. Some other places where you can find us are on our uh, social media accounts, Twitter and Instagram, at even the score pod we are active there come and find us tell us what you think about our episodes and just that's where you're going to find the most recent information about what's coming out here in the near future but until we get ready for that we have some work to do behind the scenes and that means i can only thank my co-hosts anthony and jason for all that they've done in season two and all that we're going to do moving forward so thank you very much to you both well you're very welcome don but also thank you yeah I mean, we say this a lot behind the scenes, but yeah, maybe it's worth uh, documenting in recorded form. Just, you know, thank you for uh, bringing us together, but then also mm. for all the work behind the scenes and actually bringing these episodes to the, the listening public. And, you know, we wouldn't be doing this. Well, maybe we would, but it would hit the same without having some members of the public who actually care so Mm -hmm. thank you public for taking the time to listen to us and giving us reviews and stuff and giving us feedback when we ask and and we're gonna have more anime episodes yes (laughs) indeed we have to yeah for sure absolutely well, thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks to you two. Uh, I think this has been a really enjoyable season. I love the structure that we're going into, and I'm really looking forward to what we're coming out with in this Between the Seeds and structure. So continue to listen. Thank you very much, and take care. The shark is going to get in that ass.